This morning we're going to be in John chapter 4, and so I want to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 4. This morning we're going to be looking at the first 26 verses, so I'm going to, I hope nobody groaned when I said 26 verses, um, that's a good thing, uh, but I am going to be looking at these, and then tonight I want to invite you to come on out to church tonight. Tonight, Pastor Mike from our church in Fredericksburg, Texas, he's actually going to be finishing John chapter 4 tonight. And so today you're going to get teaching from the entirety of John chapter 4 if you come on out to our service tonight. And so today we're going to be looking at a passage that I think is familiar for many of us, and that's Jesus' encounter with the woman at the well. Now, if this is a story that you've never heard before, you're really in for a treat. But over the last few weeks, Pastor Matt has been doing a series over the summer where he's been talking about a bunch of social issues that we see in our culture today. And what we see in John chapter 4 is that Jesus approaches someone who is very involved with the culture someone who is very lost, and someone who is very broken. And we see an example by Jesus himself how we are to engage these people. And so I thought this would be a good passage for us to look at in light of the series that Pastor Matt has walked us through on how we as followers of Christ can engage people in the culture with the gospel. And so hopefully you've turned to John chapter 4. Let's go ahead and... Read that. You know what? Why don't we stand up for the reading of the Word of God this morning? I think that would be a great thing to do. Okay, so John chapter 4, starting in verse 1, it says, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. 
The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to Him, I know that Messiah is coming, He who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Let's pray this morning. Lord, I thank You for this morning, God. I thank You for Your Word. Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. God, I pray that as we look at this passage today, Lord, that it would challenge us, that it would comfort us, and that it would strengthen us to go and share the gospel with those who are lost and hurting in this world. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you can have a seat. So this encounter that Jesus has with this woman is special for many reasons. And one of those reasons is that this is the first time in the Gospel of John that Jesus approaches someone with the Gospel. Now, if you're familiar with the Gospel of John, you'll know that in John chapter 3, that Nicodemus approached Jesus asking how to have eternal life. But this is the first time where Jesus goes to someone and he approaches that person and he shares the gospel with them. And so as I was saying, I think this is important for us to look at today as I trust that we hope to as well to go and engage our culture with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We hope to go and engage people who are broken, people who have believed the lies of the enemy and that are total in total opposition to God. How many of you can agree that we're surrounded today by people who need Jesus? And so in this passage, Jesus shows us what it looks like to engage someone who is completely lost. And my hope today is that we'll be strengthened by his example to go out and do likewise. So let's take a closer look at this passage. Now in the first four verses... The Pharisees have learned that Jesus now has more disciples than John the Baptist, that Jesus' disciples are now baptizing more people than John the Baptist has baptized, and Jesus sensed that there could be some animosity brewing between him and the Pharisees, and he knows that it's not yet his time for him to have an altercation with the Pharisees. His hour hadn't yet come for that to happen, so to avoid this commotion with the Pharisees, Jesus sets out for Galilee. Now, verse 4, it says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. Now, technically, this isn't true. Geographically, there were two other routes that 
Jesus could have taken to get to Galilee. In fact, most devout Jews would never pass through Samaria to get to Galilee. They would take these other routes to get to Galilee. But John says that Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And so something that's really important, some context here that I think will be beneficial for us is to know the dynamic between the Jews and the Samaritans at this point in time of history. So to get a little scope of this significance, we're going to do a little Old Testament survey quickly. So those of you who have taken KBI before, this will be a refresher for you. Those of you who have never taken KBI before, consider this a plug for you on what you can be getting if you come to KBI. So the animosity between the Jews and Samaritans goes all the way back to the division of the kingdom of Israel. So originally, with with the first king of Israel, King Saul, and then King David and King Solomon, the first three kings of Israel, it was a united kingdom. There was one nation. But then after King Solomon, the kingdom split. You had the southern kingdom, which was Judah, and their capital was Jerusalem. David had established Jerusalem as the capital, and that's where Solomon built the temple. But then you had the northern kingdom, which was Israel, and they constructed Samaria and built Samaria, and that was where the capital city of the northern kingdom was. And all throughout the history of the northern kingdom, every single king was a wicked king. And they introduced idol worship, they introduced sacrifices that weren't according to the law of God, they even brought in child sacrifice. And the northern kingdom, where Samaria was the capital, was full of polluted worship. And so as a result, God had Assyria invade Israel. And this was after God had given Israel plenty of chances to repent. He had sent prophet after prophet to warn Israel to repent of their idolatry. They refused to do so. And so God sent the Assyrians to attack Israel. And so these pagan Gentiles came into Israel And they began to intermarry with the Jews who the Assyrians left behind. Most of the Jews were deported and taken away, but a few Jews were left behind. And these Jews that remained intermarried with these pagan Gentiles from Assyria that came. And these are the people that are now known in this passage as the Samaritans. Everyone following along so far? Okay. So now you have these pagan Gentiles mixing their religion with what was already a distorted form of worship in the northern kingdom. And you can see why the the Jews from Judah who considered Jerusalem as the original place of worship, you could see where this animosity comes from. Because the Samaritans, they ended up with a very syncretistic form of Religion. In other words, they had grabbed all of these different religions, including the Jewish religion, and they had mixed it all together, and as a result, this was what their worship was. And so an example of this blending of religions, the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Bible. They, they only accepted the Pentateuch. They reject, rejected the prophetical books, and they rejected the Psalms. And so... The Jews did, had, had no good feelings toward the Samaritans because the Jews, they had accepted the entirety of the Old Testament. They saw all of that as the word of God. 
And so that's why they decided, no, in Jerusalem is where we are to worship God. But the Samaritans believed that their place of worship was at the bottom of where this um, story takes place in Mount Gerizim, where this well is at. And so that's a little bit of the history. And so the Jews did not want to have any dealings with the Samaritans. And so when they would travel to Galilee... They would do what none of us do. They would enter it in their Google Maps, and they would pick the longest route, and they would take that route to get to Galilee. But John says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. And I believe that Jesus knew that there was a divine appointment that awaited him. I believe, I believe that Jesus knew that he had some business of his father to tend to, and that business was in Samaria. And so verses 5 through 8, it says, So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. We see this instance in, in Genesis chapter 48, Jacob giving of this land to his son Joseph. Then it continues in verse 6, Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And so Jesus arrives at this town in Samaria at about 12 noon. It was the sixth hour, and in the Jewish culture at the time, that 6 a.m. when the sun would rise would be the first hour of the day. So it was... About the sixth hour, Jesus had been traveling with his disciples, most likely since sunrise. He'd been traveling for at least five hours. And John tells us that Jesus was tired and thirsty. Now, this little anecdote is a great reminder for us that, yes, Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully man. Jesus was thirsty. Jesus got thirsty just like all of us. Jesus got hungry and tired just as all of us do. And so he stops at a well named Jacob's Well. Now this well is actually still there today. You can visit this well, and it's actually still giving water today. And so this Samaritan woman comes to draw water, and Jesus asks her for a drink. Now typically it was the women of that day who would go and get water from the well, and they would get water to wash their clothes and for their food and to clean themselves and their families. And usually the women would travel together. It would be sort of a social gathering at the well, a time of fellowship, a time of catching up on the events of the day before. But notice this woman is traveling alone. And usually the women, they would go either at the beginning of the day when it was cool, or they would go as the sun was starting to set at night, again, when it was getting cooler. But this woman, she's traveling by herself, and she's going at a time of day when it's at its hottest, when no other woman would be going to the well. And so what we see here is that this woman was an outcast. And we, we see that this woman had a, a marred past with her relationships. And to be divorced in, in that day was really, it was, it was a capital offense to have an adultery with someone, and the fact that this woman had been married five times shows that more than likely she was ostracized by the rest of the women in the village. 
So this is who this woman is. She's having to go to the well by herself because of her shame and probably because she's been rejected by other, all the other women in her village. But this is who Jesus chooses to encounter and chooses to approach with the gospel. And so verse 9, it says, The Samaritan woman said to Jesus, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So Jesus talking to this woman was completely unheard of. A Jew would never talk to a Samaritan woman in public. In fact, Jesus being a rabbi, rabbis would never even talk to any women in public. In fact, if, if they went out to the market with their family and they had some women in their family, they wouldn't even talk to their own family members in public if they were women. And so the fact that this Jewish man is talking to a Samaritan woman is completely unheard of, and she knew that. This woman is at the very bottom of the totem pole of someone that a Jewish rabbi should be talking to in public, but yet here we see Jesus, the Messiah, the rabbi of rabbis, the king of the Jews, he is on a mission. And Jesus uses this encounter with the Samaritan woman to show us that salvation is for all people. Salvation is for all. Salvation isn't just for the Jews. It's for everyone. And Jesus says in Luke 5.32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I think as we read accounts like this of, of people that are lost in their sin, that we don't think, oh, this person's so awful, how could they be doing that? But when we read it, we remind ourselves that all of us at one point were this Samaritan woman. All of us were completely lost in our sin and in complete opposition to God. And that Jesus came for us. Just like Jesus had to go to Samaria, Jesus had to come and have an encounter with us. And so this woman, she's shocked that Jesus is even talking to her, but Jesus is going to continue to surprise her with where this conversation goes. In verses 10 through 15, Jesus answers her and he says, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. So Jesus is saying, if you had any idea who I was, you wouldn't be so caught up on the cultural history between Jews and Samaritans. You, you wouldn't be seeing through that lens if you knew who I truly was. You would be asking me, for living water, and I would give it to you. Remember, this conversation started with Jesus being thirsty, but after he recognizes her spiritual thirst, he, he switches gears, and now he's offering water to her. She's obviously confused by what's going on, and she asks him where he's going to get this water from. She says, are you better than Jacob? Now remember, they, the Samaritans believed in the first five books of the Bible, so they believed in the patriarch, and they respected Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and that history. 
And this well that Jacob dug was almost 2,000 years old at this point, and it's still producing water. So this woman's asking, are, are you somehow better than Jacob and going to produce water that can last more than 2,000 years? She's still unaware that Jesus is talking about spiritual realities at this point. So Jesus says to her, everyone who drinks of this water, referring to Jacob's well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now in this passage today, I see three things that are a result of drinking from the living water that Jesus gives. Now I believe this living water that he's talking about is salvation. That Jesus is offering this woman salvation. And so there's three things that I want to look at today that we see results from living water. And for us believers, these are traits that we should see in our lives. If we profess that we've drank of the living water, we should see these three things in our lives. And so the first thing is that living water quenches your thirst. Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. And Jesus tells this to this woman, she'll never be thirsty again. This woman was spiritually thirsty. And she was trying to quench her thirst in the world. And she was using relationships to quench this thirst that she had. She was looking for peace. She was looking for purpose. She was looking for satisfaction. And she was looking for meaning. But she was looking for this in all of the wrong places. And this was all of us before Christ saved us. I think all of us can relate to one point or another where we were looking to the world to satisfy us. We were looking to the world for purpose and for meaning. But the living water quenches us of those thirsts. We don't look to anything in the world now to satisfy us now that we've drank from the living water. At least we shouldn't be looking to the world now to satisfy us of these things. And so I would say today that if you're still preoccupied with the things of this world, if you're still looking to the world for your satisfaction and for your peace and for your salvation, and for your purpose, that you have yet to drink from the well of Christ. Because Jesus says that those who have the living water will never be thirsty again. Jesus doesn't say if you drink of the living water, it will last you for a few months, but then you'll have to come back and drink again so you can have your thirst quenched. No, he says you will never be thirsty again. And sadly, I, I see in today's culture many self-professing Christians who are still very thirsty for the things of the world. They still drink from the well of the world. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27, God says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. From all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Does this passage describe you this morning? Are you someone who has tasted of the living water and you want to walk in his statutes? You're careful to obey all of his rules. Have you died to your sin? Have you forsaken the things of the world? I pray that this is true for all of us who have professed Christ. Or if you're still being ruled today by your worldly thirst, if you're still looking to the things of this world for your satisfaction, for your purpose, I would encourage you and challenge you to do what David says in Psalms 34 verse 8 where he says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. The Lord is good, amen? And those of us who drink from this living water, we, we know that. So I want to challenge you today, if, if this doesn't describe you, to turn to Christ to find your salvation and your satisfaction in Him. So that's the first result that I see of drinking of the living water is that it will quench your thirst. The second is that it produces eternal life. Jesus says that the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Living water will quench your thirst from this world, but it also guarantees that you will spend eternity in the new world with Christ. Amen. And I think we as Christians could do a better job of reminding ourselves of this truth. We are guaranteed eternity with Christ the King forever in the presence of our Creator. Remind ourselves of the promises that we have through Christ. To meditate on the reality of heaven, of its glory, of its riches, of its pleasures, of its King. This comes with drinking of the living water, eternity with God. So these are the first two things. Living water will quench your thirst of the world and it will give you eternal life. There's one more thing that living water brings that we'll look at in a few minutes. But first now, let's see the woman's response after Jesus gives her this offer. The woman says to him, Sir, in verse 15, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So the woman's still confused, but at least now she, she wants what Jesus is offering her. She thinks, this would be great if I had water that never ran out. I would never have to do this walk of shame in the heat of the day to come back to this well and be reminded of my past, to be reminded of my shortcomings, to be reminded why it is that I can't come with the larger group of women. Yes, give me this living water. But again, Jesus isn't talking about physical water. He's talking about salvation. And this woman seems to be unaware that he's talking about this spiritual transformation. And so let's see Jesus' response in verse 16. Jesus says to her, Go, call your husband and come here. 
The woman answers him, I have no husband. Jesus says to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman says to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So this woman was lost, and she was dead in her sins. And Jesus had offered her and and made known to her the benefits of salvation. But Jesus also knew that it was necessary for her to realize her sin and who it was that could take that sin away. And so Jesus brings up her husband, knowing that it will cause her to bring up her past and confront her sin. So Jesus models here for us in sharing the gospel with people, we have to confront their sin. We can't just give them the good news and what salvation will bring without bringing up the sin that they have in their lives. We're going to face people today who are thirsty, who've been drinking from the well of relationships and from social media and from alcohol and from parties and finding, trying to find their satisfaction in all of these things who are lost and thirsty. And in sharing the gospel with them, we have to make them aware of their sin and who it is that can take that sin away. And so that's why Jesus says to her, go call your husband. He's forcing her to confront her sin. He's bringing her sin to the surface. Notice Jesus didn't say, woman, I see you're still confused. You haven't figured out this salvation thing. Well, just trust me, salvation is a great thing. I want you to be in heaven forever with me. So repeat this prayer after me and you can go on your way and you'll be good to go. No, Jesus confronts her sin. And I'm sure it was awkward. I'm sure from this point on, it was an awkward conversation. I'm sure it made things uncomfortable. But Jesus went there. Jesus opened up that can. Jesus brought up her past. He knew it was uncomfortable, but he also knew it was necessary. Because there's no salvation without the conviction and repentance of sin. And we've got to confront our sin and deal with it, even if it's difficult. I think all of us in here can be honest. When we deal with our sin, it's, it's not an easy thing. It's difficult. But John Calvin, the, the French reformer, in his commentary on this verse, he had this to say. In order that anyone may profit in the school of Christ... His hardness must be subdued by the demonstration of his misery. As the earth, in order that it may become fruitful, is prepared and softened by the plowshare. So confrontation with our sin is necessary if we want to see fruit in our lives. And I think that all of us genuinely want to fulfill the Great Commission. Who in here would not want to see San Antonio transformed by the power of God and San Antonio turned to Christ? All of us would love to see that. But I think we can all be honest and say it's really hard to get uncomfortable with people and it's really hard to bring up people's sin because it's awkward and 
We can get called hateful and bigots and unloving. But Jesus models for us here that it's necessary for us to do this when we share the gospel. Because sin is serious. And so we can't shy away from dealing with sin in our lives. And unfortunately, the, the church at large has been guilty of shying away from these uncomfortable topics that are in Scripture. They shy away from dealing with sin, and so the result is they, they don't have sermons, they don't preach the Word, they have talks, and they have conversations, and they have chats with their people, and they give them fluffy, feel-good messages and send them on their way without dealing with their sin. So a result of this sort of preaching, if you want to call it, is it gives people a small view of Christ. And if you have a small view of Christ, you have a small view of your sin. So sin must be dealt with. Sin is serious. God cannot tolerate sin. In fact, God hates sin. Your sin isn't just a bad habit. It's not just a hang-up. It's not just a little problem that you have. No, your sin and all sin is cosmic treason against the holy creator of the universe. And if your sin is not dealt with on the day of judgment, God will give you what you rightly deserve. His wrath poured out on you for all eternity. That is the result of sin. But for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who have drank of the living water, for those of us who have repented of our sin and placed our faith in Christ, on that day, God will not look at us and see our sin. He'll look at us and He'll see our Savior. And He'll welcome us into eternal rest with open arms. Amen. Because for those of us who are in Christ, He took our sin and He took it on Himself. That, that is the good news of the Gospel, that Jesus took your sin that was a heinous offense against God and He bore it on His back and on the cross He faced the wrath of God that all of us deserved. And He took it on the cross. And so this is the good news that we have to offer people but in order for it to be good news, we have to give them the bad news and make them aware of the sin in their lives. So that's what Jesus is doing here. And so the woman replies in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. By her doing this, she's acknowledging her fault. She, she didn't say, you don't know what you're talking about. I, I just have one husband. No, she calls him a prophet. And by doing so, what she's doing is she's confessing her sin to Christ. She's saying, what you have just said is true. So then she goes on in verse 20 to say, our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Now some people see this response of hers and they think that she's changing the subject. That Jesus has brought up her sin, she doesn't want to deal with it, so now she changes the subject and starts asking him, where's the right place to worship? But I think that she has felt conviction of her sin, and I think that 
She now believes that the person that's talking to her, that Jesus was sent by God. This, this prophet had the power to see into her entire past and tell her her life story. And so she wants to know now, how, what's the right way for me to worship this God that's given you the power to tell me my history? And so she asks him, she starts talking to him about worship. Now remember, the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Bible and were the Samaritans worshipped was at the bottom of Mount Gerizim, and that's where Abraham initially established his first altar of worship. And so that's where the Samaritans believed was the right place to worship. But if, if they had read the entirety of the Old Testament, they would have seen in Second Chronicles where God established Jerusalem, where his temple would be and where he was to be worshipped. And so that's, those are the two places that she brings up. But Jesus... He shatters both of these locations of worship with his statement to her. He says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is saying a time is coming where it won't matter where you worship, but it will matter how you worship. The, the where of worship isn't significant, but the how of worship is everything. It's critical. And the Samaritans, they didn't have the right how for worship. Jesus says that salvation is from the Jews. What he's saying here is that the Jews have been given the full revelation of worship. They've been given the full revelation of the Old Testament. They've accepted it. And so God gave the Jews all of Scripture, and obviously the Messiah comes from the Jews, and so salvation is from the Jews. But the Jews had the proper way to worship. Now, we see in the New Testament that they didn't necessarily obey that, and they brought in other forms of worship. But this phrase, you worship what you do not know, is not to be overlooked. What you know about God has an impact on how you worship God. Your knowledge of God will influence your worship of God. So it can be said that bad theology will lead to bad worship. But the opposite is true, that right theology will lead to right worship. So Jesus then goes on to say, the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers... The true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And so here Jesus shows us the third thing that living water produces. Living water produces true worshipers. Jesus says that those who worship God must worship him in spirit and truth. This isn't optional. There's only one way to worship God. There's only one right way to worship God, and that is in spirit and truth. God is spirit. God doesn't have a body like man. And so we worship him in spirit. So that means that all these external forms of worship 
with candles and incense and altars, Jesus is saying these forms of worship are no longer necessary. In fact, all of this was done away with when Jesus was crucified and the veil in the temple was ripped in two from top to bottom, showing that all these ceremonies of worship were no longer necessary. But God is saying that Jesus is saying that God is spirit, and so we must worship him in spirit and truth. And so what does this mean to worship God in spirit? Well, I think it it means that it's worship that comes from the depths of our beings. It's worship that we do with our whole self. It's worship with our whole heart. It's an internal worship. It's, It's not an external performance. So that's worshiping God in spirit. The second thing that Jesus says is that true worshipers worship in truth. Now Jesus is saying that we are to worship the Father according to how he has revealed himself in Scripture. Because Scripture is the truth. God's word is truth. Jesus, when he was praying to the Father before he was arrested... In John 17, 17, he says this, praying to God, he says, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And so I would submit to you today that you cannot be a true worshiper of God apart from the word of God. And that's why we we call our gathering with the saints a worship service. We don't just call it that because we sing songs to God, but... Because the whole day is worship, opening up God's word and reading it and receiving teaching from it is the purest form of worship. Because in there you are worshiping God in truth. There are many forms of religion today that claim they are worshiping God, but they're not worshiping the God of this Bible. They're not worshiping God according to what his word says. Just an example of this, the the Mormon religion believes that God was a created being. We don't see that anywhere in Scripture. So, So that is not a true worship. We must know what the Scripture says in order to have a right worship of our God. And notice also that Jesus says that true worshipers will worship the Father, Now, there's a lot of people today that don't want to have anything to do with God the Father. They don't want to have anything to do with the God of the Old Testament. They say that that God's an angry God. That God is a a God that murders. That God is a God that's unjust. That's a God of wrath and of judgment. Many people today, they just want to worship Jesus. And their view of Jesus is kind of this socialist hippie that accepts everything and that's just loving and doesn't want to condemn you. Again, they're not worshiping the God of Scripture. And this is how bad theology can lead to bad worship. How can you rightly approach God in worship if you have no knowledge of the Old Testament? If you don't know about His holiness and His purity, if you don't know of the law and our inadequacy to uphold it, You see, the more you learn about God in Scripture, the more you will want to worship that God. So we must worship the Father in spirit and truth. We must. This this isn't optional for us as believers. 
So let's quickly look at the last few verses of our passage this morning. In verse 25, the woman says to Jesus, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So in this last bit of interaction with the woman, Jesus completes what is necessary to rightly share the gospel with unbelievers. Jesus had already told her about the benefits of salvation. Jesus had already confronted his sin. But now Jesus is making her aware of the only person that can take that sin away. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the only one who can give you salvation. And this is the message that we have to bring to the world. Yes, we share with them the benefits of salvation. It will quench your thirst from the world. It will give you eternity with God. And we confront their sin, but if we leave them at that and don't tell them who it is that will take that sin away, we have failed that person in our gospel presentation. We must make them aware that Jesus is the only one who can save there's only one way to, Jesus, to, to God, and that's through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so this is the message that we have to bring to those who are lost in our culture today. This is the model that Jesus sets for us. Jesus approaches the unapproachable. And he offers her something that only he can give. He offers her living water. And so I, I hope that we can be challenged by this today because like I said, we all know people who are lost in our culture today who need this message of salvation, who need this offer of living water. So as, as we close this morning, I'll, I'll invite the worship team up as we get ready for communion. I want to ask you today, do you want this living water? Do you want your thirst quenched from the world? Do you no longer want to desire the things of this world? Do you want to spend eternity with God? Do you desire to be a true worshiper? There's only one way that this is possible, and that's through Jesus Christ. And so this offer is here today for anybody who isn't a follower of Christ. Jesus is here this morning offering you this living water. Maybe you're in here today and you've come to church and you're lost and you're broken and you've been tasting of the world and you've seen that it's, it's left you empty. It still leaves you thirsty. Maybe you've even felt conviction of your sin this morning and, and what it's done to separate you from God. I want to challenge you this morning to turn to Christ. Place your faith in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sin. Lay it at the feet of Jesus. Trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that his death was enough to satisfy the wrath of God against your sin and drink of his living water this morning. Let's pray.
Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, your word is everything to us. We would be so lost without the word of God. Lord, thank you for this encounter in John chapter 4. Lord, thank you for your son that was so compelled to reach the lost that he did what no one else would have done in that time. And he talked to this Samaritan woman and he offered her hope. He offered her life. He offered her healing. And that's through salvation. Lord, if there's anyone in here today who is thirsty for that living water, God, that you would save their souls you would convict them of the Holy Spirit, that you would bring them to a place of repentance and trust and faith in Christ. And Lord, we know that those who place their faith in you will receive salvation. They will receive that living water. So Lord, I thank you for that. Lord, be with this time of communion as we partake of your table. In Jesus' name, amen.